Blog Talk Radio. There's a direct relationship between having the businesses and being in prison. Go find an, see how many Asians you can find in American prisons. They ain't going to be in there. But 51% of your prison will be black because you don't black don't have any businesses and industries. There's a direct link. Blacks won't practice group economics. Blacks won't practice group politics. If you don't practice, you're setting yourself up. I told that five-story building, you're setting yourself to get wiped out. Understand the nature of race, which is economics. If you, if you build the first floor, it's economic. Build your businesses and your industries. Control buildings and industry, and put that pools in your money. And hold that money. And, it's a, and practice group economics <clears throat> with it. Arab and Asian money bounces 12 to 13 times for at least. Jewish money bounces 18 times. Black folk got to learn how to practice group economics. Black Americans spend every penny they get outside their own community. Then you take the money and the wealth that you get from that first floor and go to the second floor. The second floor is politics. You then take that money on the first floor and you control your politics. Black folk must quit allowing people to tell them to go out and vote. Vote for what? Nobody's going to do anything for black folk in politics. Politics is controlled by money. Major corporations who got the money. That's what controls politics. If you have no money, you have no say-so, you have no benefits coming. So you take your money and you control and you take your money from the first floor, you buy every politician on the second floor. And any politician you can't buy, you rent or lease them to get what you need. Then once you get the second floor under control with the politician, with your money, then you go to the third floor. The third floor is then is the police department and the court system. You take your money from the first floor and your politics on the second floor and you control the court system and the police department. Then the fourth floor, the fourth floor then is media. You then take the money that you generate off the first floor from business and industries and you go after radio stations, TV stations, newspapers, and cable systems so that you can now inform and communicate with your own people. Right now, <clears throat> black folk only control less than 35 thousandths of 1% of the media in the United States. Out of 12,000 radio stations, black folk own about something like about 75, 80. That's all. You own no cable systems. You don't have a daily newspaper. You have nothing of importance. You don't, you got about one black TV station. And you, so you can't communicate with your people. You can't inform your people. You can't do anything. You can have Rush Limbaugh and all the rest of the guys talking about racism all day long and bad-mouthing you. And O'Reilly, they can talk, call black folk all kind of names all day long. What are you going to do? You can't respond. You can't even communicate with your own people because you, you don't have an economic base. 51% of all the prisoners in the United States are black people. You know, you know you only make up 12% of the population. That's no accident. It's because you don't control the economics and the politics. And they're going to go after the weakest people they can get their hands on to incarcerate them. That's the black folk. And what are you going to do in response to them when they, when they, when they over-incarcerate you? You're going to go out and have a march, a demonstration. We're going to march. March for what? Who cares? Marches never changed anything.
many a young athlete entertains hoop dreams. Few, if any, have tried as hard to make them come true as the kid our Steve Hartman has gone to see. Every week, he set himself up for disappointment. Every week, 13-year-old Jamarian Stiles came to this community center in Boca Raton, Florida, hoping to play basketball with the other kids. And every week, he was rejected. They'll start picking teams, and I would be the only one left out. And then they'll just tell me, just go home and stuff. You can break someone's heart like that. The problem was obvious to everyone but Jamarion. He lost his hands and most of his arms as an infant due to a rare bacterial infection. But he insisted that was no reason to give up his hoop dreams. What about soccer? Have you heard of that sport? Yeah, hear it every day. Why don't you play soccer? That just seems like the obvious thing. You would think that I would be good at soccer. I'm really not. I'm horrible. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why, on the first day of class here at Eagles Landing Middle School, Jamarian took his case to basketball coach Darian Williams. Yeah. Said he wanted to be on the team this year. I said, all great, well, just make sure you try out. He said, okay, great, but what are you really thinking? <laughs> this man has no arms. Yeah. How is he going to play basketball? But, man, he told me, Mr. Williams, I've never been on a team before. Even if I don't play, I just want to be on the team. And how could I say no to that? And that's how the Eagles got their first armless basketball player. Jamarian, number two there, quickly earned a reputation as the hardest worker on the squad. He was usually the first one in the gym, usually the last one to leave. Still, he sat on the bench most of the season. Try one more. Until last month. Coach put him in the game with about six minutes left. And when he eventually got the ball on the far side of the court, everyone yelled, shoot it. So he did and sank a three-pointer. And if you didn't quite see that, don't worry, because shortly after, he got the ball again, this time on the near side, for another three-pointer. At the buzzer. Jamarian Stiles, the kid no one would pick, was now everyone's hero. Needless to say, today, Jamarian can play all he wants at the community center. He just made the volleyball team and has every intention of playing football next year. Really, the only thing he won't play is the victim. If I could wave a magic wand right now and give you your arms back, would you want them? I don't need them. <laughs> you don't need them? No. Nope. Who needs hands when you've got this kind of touch? Uh, now, learn this from uh, Joel Osteen. That, that's my man. He be texting me. That's my man. This, God done put some people around me. Show me some stuff. He was telling this story. He said, uh, this man that went to heaven, he was walking with Peter uh, down this aisleway, and it had, was going down this corridor, had a lot of doors on it, and said all these doors had names on it. And he said, uh, Peter, let me ask you something. What's, what's, the, what's all these doors these names on? He said, don't worry about it. Just go ahead. So he kept walking. And he messed around. He saw one of them doors and had his name on it. He said, whoa. He said, hey, Peter, this here ain't got my name on it. <laughs> something I need to know? He said, man, don't worry about that. You, you here now. Just go on in there and talk to him. See what he did. He said, no, nah, I want to know what's in the door. He said, you sure you want to see what's in the door? He said, yeah. So he opened up the door. It was a warehouse. It had a number of shelves on it. And then the shelves had nothing but packages. 
and all the packages had his name on them. And he said, what is all these boxes? He said, that's all of the blessings, all of the things God wanted to ship to you. But number one, you didn't ask him for it. Then number two, you didn't believe you would have it. Then you, you doubted him. And then you, you felt like you wasn't worthy. And so now all these boxes is up here. Now the man standing there wishing he had never even been in the room. And I started thinking. I got some dudes that work for me. And I said, I want you to do this graph for me. And that's what I'm finna show you now. See, what you happen is, when God sends your package, he only sends it to one street. That's Faith Street. You got to stay in faith. You can't move off of Faith Street. You can't get on Doubted Drive. You can't be over there and start doubting it, because your package gonna go right on by. You can't lose your faith and get on not meant to be way because your package is going to keep going right on by. Because the package just go to Faith Street. You can get your little feelings hurt. I ain't worthy. Guess what? Your package going to keep going right on by. You have not because you ask not. Then you sit up here and start feeling sorry for yourself. You go over on pity way. Your package keep going right on by. If you stay right on Faith Street, don't ever come off, because the blessing is coming. If you wait on it, here it comes. It may not come when you want it, but it don't pass. But if you get up and you move off of Faith Street, your box going to get sent back to Cinder. And now you're going to have a warehouse with a bunch of boxes with your name on it that you didn't never get. And I don't know about you, but I want everything he got for me. If he got something for me, I need all of mine. Because I don't know about you, but God lay you out, man. God will give you stuff. Man, he done took me places. I ain't never thought I was going to go. I done seen parts of the world I never even thought I could go to. He done gave me stuff. He done put people in my life. God will do it for you, man. But you just got to stay, man. Use these principles of success. Understand, God is just that way. He'll lay you out. Because if he can lay me out, see, if he fix me and change me and get me over here trying to do better, I ain't perfect. I'm just trying to do better. I still say some stuff I ain't supposed to say. You understand? I ain't, I ain't got it all together yet. I just got in the gate. I'm a new kind of Christian. But ain't no lock on my gate either. So if, if you see, once you, once you check me, I'm probably going to check you back. But I'm getting better at that. I don't know how to love my enemies yet. I'm getting better at it, though. But it's a process. And the more times we can make people understand that it's a process, the more people can come in. And y'all people that have been good to me, that have been praying for me. I mean, man, my mama, if she could see me now, I just wish my mama could see me. Because she's been praying for this hill all her life. Watch my son. Well, he done watched me, mama. And I'm cool now. And my philosophy is very simple. I was who I was. But I am who I am. And I'm cool with both them people. Because who I was wasn't that bad cap. I made some mistakes. But, I, but I've been changed a little bit. And it's still a process. And the more people that you invite into the process, the better this is. Because ain't nobody perfect know how. So I really appreciate y'all, man, hearing me.
and listening to me. I'm going to ask Kirk Franklin. People keep talking about how the world is going to come to an end. If anybody People keep talking about how society is falling down today And as hard as I try not to listen just for what them folks got to say. But you know, I just can't help but look around and see we digging our own grave. And there's just one thing I want to know. Can anybody be
Hey, Bobby, why do you like soul food? Because it makes me happy. Pass the peas like you used to say. 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 You know what? I love to get down. 
I mean, boy, I got out of that tune coming out. We got to record Bird right here, you know. Sure. So we're trying to get our thing out of the way before Bird gets into it. Bird, come on, get down before we... Is it all right? Bird, do you think it's going to be a hit, Bird, you got? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You think it's going to be a hit? Yeah. I know it's a smash. I know it's a smash. Because you're in the bank, man. You're the same way as that, you know. It's got to be a hit. Slavery. It used to be legal everywhere and practiced everywhere. In the 21st century, it's illegal, but guess what? It's still practiced everywhere. Next, we'll talk to a man who's been there, who's lived a slave's life. This program was made possible by funding from the UCF Global Perspectives Office. Hello and welcome to the Global Perspective Show. I'm John Bercia, Special Assistant to the President for Global Perspectives at the University of Central Florida. Our topic today is human trafficking, an issue that many of us are not that familiar with. It's been called slavery. It's been called by other names. It's a very prevalent problem in the world of the 21st century. Our guest today is Francis Bach. Uh, he's a man who's lived the issue. He's a former slave from Sudan. Today he's an abolitionist and the author of a book, The First Contemporary Slave Narrative, Escape from Slavery. Welcome, Mr. Bach. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Thank you for joining us. 
Well, why don't we start at the beginning? Tell us how all of this started for you, uh, where you were as a child when your world suddenly changed. This horrible story of mine and the story of my people, uh, in my um, generation, it started when I was a young boy, seven years old, in 1986. That was the time I was sent by my mother to go to a local um, marketplace where these angry uh, fundamentalist Arabs and Islamists, Arab Bagara or Arab Jinjaweed, came and stormed the market and they killed the man brutally. I watched the men and women would kill around me. And that day I became a victim of slavery. I was taken up to northern Sudan where I served the northern Sudanese militiamen has his property. Where, well, well, tell us, and, and how were you transported from your village up to northern Sudan? Well, after they destroyed, this militiaman destroyed and killed the man, in particular at the marketplace, and also stealing our livestock, um, and rounding up all the women and children. And, and just to be clear, when I mention women, it's not randomly every kind of women. They only select the women that are still physical and strong and the old one, they abandoned them. So we were taking up to the north and the young kids who cannot walk, because it's a very long walk, they um, actually put them on the donkeys. Uh, and um, I was actually uh, riding a donkey along with other kids. Uh, we were put in a sort of basket, I don't know how to describe it, the best description I could give. Um, and, and that's how I made it to northern Sudan and spending next 10 years uh, serving um, the militiamen who participated himself on the uh, on that uh, raiding. Well, tell us uh, early on you tried to escape. What what was the result of that? Well, attempt? I first I first attempted to escape, and this is uh, seven years after I was taken to that village, and I have learned that I was completely uh, dehumanized. Um, I was uh, actually um, denied not even to be around people. I was forced to sleep with the animals, near to the animals, and I was in shock or surprised with the animals that they had because my people, the Dinka tribes, are the cattle people. And my own family, my father, has actually earned a lot of cattle. But I was actually shocked how the young, you know, boy, like my age, seven years old, being actually put far away from the people, nobody even guiding him, nobody even uh, mentoring him. So, and I knew I was in the wrong place with the wrong people. So I decided to escape. And it was a very hard decision for me to make because I was too young at the time and I didn't know my way where to go. Because when I was brought into that community, uh, seven years before I first attempted, I was too young, and uh, I didn't know the language they speak because they speak Arabic, and I speak Dinka, which is my native language. However, I attempted to run away early one morning because I'm the first one to walk up in the morning, and I'm the last one to go to bed. That was my life routine. So one of the morning, I don't know, I assume might have been four in the morning or three a.m. in the morning, and I ran away, and my master cousin was watching over me. So he returned me home and I was beaten and I was threatened not to escape again by a machine gun. 
And, and but you did. You you escaped I did. again. I did. I actually, after I was uh, captured back the first day, I waited for two days, and I said to myself, I would rather die than being slave, because I hate the way they treat me, and also the way they treat other slaves. And I have witnessed other slaves, both boys and girls, being treated the same way. And the worst one that I actually made my mind to run away from these people, I knew that one day they will hurt me. They were tortured me because there was a boy who just uh, neighboring us, who actually working with the cousin of my master, who one day refused to go after the camels. Um, his master, one of the richest guy in the area with the camels, and the boy was sick. They could see it and smell it. But he was not given that chance to stay home. So he told his master, I'm not going to do this work today. And with that, you know, uh, not actually listening to his master. His master said he's lazy. And what he did was he cut off his left leg. He said, we will make you stay home. And that's how they tortured that young man. And I was brought to that house, particularly to see and to be eyewitness what may possibly happen to me if I actually resisted or refused not to uh, do what my master actually commanded me to do. And, and that's what I said to myself, it, it wouldn't be a matter how long I will be with these people or serving them or do what. They were still not going to appreciate all that I do or even um, recognize uh, me or one day free me and treat me equally like other human beings or like them. So you escaped again and that also failed. So the second term, I, I call it, it, it just... Uh, I think it's the God who saved me uh, that day. Is a God who uh, probably told him not to kill me. Because the second attempt, uh, it was one of the most dangerous ones. It wasn't dangerous at the time I left, because I left about the same time as the first one in the morning. But my master was very curious and very cautioned uh, after my first attempt. So he allowed me to walk about a mile uh, from the house and then he got on his horse and this horse he doesn't ride this horse except only on the special occasion important occasion because this is one of the fastest and the strongest horse that he has so he got on that horse and he took his gun with him when he came near me he told me stop and lie down on my chest and give him my hand and my leg behind me and with the rope, he actually tied me, and I would drag home. That day, I thought that was going to be um, the day he would kill me. And he actually said it. After I was brought home, he said, today is your last day on the earth. Uh, and I remember his wife, her name Hawa. And, and this is really, uh, it made me think about what such a horrible woman she was. Because she was saying to him, Why, what are you waiting for? Why can't you just shoot him? Or let me just kill him like a chicken. Or call my brother or even my son, Ahmed, to shoot him. But I was saying, why she hated me? She has children. And uh, during that moment, when Juma was standing, Juma is my former master, standing in front of me, and his gun was loaded and ready to shoot me, I just, I just closed my eyes and said, God, don't let him kill me. I have hope in the future. 
and I also said I love my parents I want to see them again and during that moment I don't know what happened I think Juma left and I was left tied up uh, for several hours and I thought that I would never walk again normally but thank God that uh, all the wounds and all the uh, injuries that I got from the tied up the long tied up uh, yield and I'm today working in my own feet and uh, healthier there's a lot of scars I still have in my leg but I survive that second attempt met me waited for three long years again and then the third time you succeeded so the third time is a three years later which was uh, in 1996 I was 17 years old that time and, and that time I, I actually decided with determination and uh, and also uh, saying to myself I'm not a seven years old anymore I'm, I'm a grown-up man and I think I could resist and fight back if anybody captured me because I want my freedom I want to go back and live my life I came from the family who loves me who always come to me every morning and every evening before I go to bed we love you who cares for me and, and I can't be in this situation anymore so my third attempt was very successful uh, God has really guided me and uh, delivered me um, until I made my way to another town called Motari and with the help of the truck driver and, and by the way this is very important here because the truck driver that I'm about to describe he's a northern Sudanese and he's a Muslim his name Abdurrahman and he actually took me first to his house and I stayed with him for two months. The same man actually paid for my bus ticket or loader ticket um, rather to make my way to the capital city of Sudan, Khartoum. I was in a refugee camp called Jaburana in, uh, in Khartoum where I was helped again by the southern Sudanese and particularly for my tribe uh, through black market and making my way to Egypt uh, early 1988. Uh, taking a train from Sudan to Sudan and Egypt border in a place called Aswan, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, Alpha. And from Alpha, I took uh, a boat towards Red Sea to Egypt to Aswan and then taking another train, uh, I don't know how many, two of them, and eventually end up in Cairo. And when I first end up in Cairo, I, I didn't even know where to stay and who to stay with because I didn't have family member and I didn't know anybody. And, and I was like just street boy. Everyone sees me, particularly when I arrived at the uh, at one of the busiest um, city in Cairo, in Tahrir, uh, the train station. Uh, everyone sees me, and they thought I was a street boy because I didn't have bag, I didn't have anything, not even nice clothes on. And finally, I was taken uh, by a taxi driver to one of the church that accommodates um, the new arrivals, Southern Sudanese and others who come to Egypt and without having family and money to pay their own rent. So I spent 22 days in one of the Catholic church called uh, Sekakini in Abbasia, uh, Cairo, until I was actually uh, invited to stay one of the family. And this person who invited me to come and stay with him is one of the leaders in my community. It's, it's a man that I call him my father at the time. He was living in a two-bedroom apartment with his 13 children and wife. So you can imagine how kind this person 
um, you know, is, and uh, he, his name Pio Tem. I stayed with him in Cairo, and I remember I and his uh, seven boys, we share either balcony or in, 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 in some small aisle and uh, living room. This is where our blankets, you know, where we sleep and lay down, and it's a very hard situation, but we survived there until um, I went to United Nations uh, and I presented my case there, like other re- immigrants who applied for refugee status. And it took me another year and a half until I was granted that opportunity to be resettled to USA uh, and, to Oregon, North Dakota in late of 1999. So then you, you came here and, and, and then began a new chapter in your life. You were no longer a slave in Sudan. You were a free person in the United States, and you decided that you immediately wanted to get into the work of exposing this problem and talking about what had happened to you, so you became an abolitionist. And you are an abolitionist to this day. Now you were in Fargo, North Dakota, and then you lived somewhere else in the Midwest, in Kansas, for a while. Actually, when I, I first came, I was, yes, indeed, in Fargo, North Dakota, and then in May of 2000, uh, you know, 1 1 uh, 2000, I actually decided to move to uh, Iowa. Not actually, I didn't decide it, I didn't even chose, I chose Iowa blindly, I didn't even know because I was struggling with the weather in the Midwest, particularly in Fargo, North Dakota. And I was telling my sponsor, Barry Nelson, with the Luton Social Services, that I'm not happy. I'm very happy that I have actually uh, made it to this country, that now I'm living my life in the way that I can live. But I want to be around the people that I could communicate with them, because I don't speak English when I first came to this country. So they mentioned four major cities. They mention Iowa, because they have a lot of South Sudanese population in Iowa, and they mention also uh, Houston, Texas, uh, and Phoenix, Arizona, and I just said Iowa. I have no idea what I was choosing. And I thought the, 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 the weather climate will be actually different, but better than in Fargo. But unfortunately, uh, I ended up in Iowa, but the good news is when I actually went to Iowa, I got to reunite with the family that used to help me in Egypt. And I stayed with them, and they got me a job at the meat company, and I got a job also at the uh, hotel. I was working two jobs, uh, except only Sunday, the day that I request for my laundry and also to cook for myself and to visit some uh, neighbors. Uh, Until May of that year, of 2000, I actually was invited uh, by the modern-day abolitionist group in Boston called American Anti-Slavery Group. And I came to Boston to visit what they were doing, and I was very much moved and inspired and so appreciative to Dr. Charles Jacobs, whom I called my American father, who then convinced me with the work that they have done on, my be- on, on behalf of my people, uh, advocating uh, the issue of slavery in Sudan and globally. So I thought, I said that if someone who's not a Southern Sudanese and not a Sudanese could be so concerned, so committed, so dedicated, why not me? I told Charles Jacobs that, Charles, I don't have what it takes, maybe now, but I hope one day I will have an opportunity to share my story, and that story will inspire people, educating them about what's happening in my country, because over two millions, including my own biological parents, were killed during that war. 
And yet, the international community turned their back on us. And yet, there's no action being taken. And this is the time for me, I will use my freedom here to help free my people. I said to Charles, what is good my freedom if my people are still dying? What is good my freedom if my people are still in slavery? So I decided um, going back to Iowa and giving two, two week notice to both my work. And I told them that I'm actually quitting. I quit those two jobs and I moved to Boston in May of 2000, May 14, and I since then started speaking locally in Massachusetts at churches, at middle school and high school and colleges, and including um, having a panel on uh, about slavery at the Kennedy School of Government, Harvard University, and uh, widely spreading all over the U.S., including North America. So it has been really a great opportunity. And by the way, it was really a right choice for me. I started my abolitionism in the city that very famous of that nature because Boston, Massachusetts is actually a central of abolitionism. And I was so proud that I started my abolition in that city and to be a part of this um, uh, historic uh, work that I do on behalf, not only on behalf of the people of South Sudan, but on behalf of all humankind. So today, uh, do you feel that there is more awareness about the problem? Are people and non-governmental groups and governments working harder to address and diminish the problem of slavery? Um, I would say yes. I would say yes, and I will say yes, particularly because of the, the reason um, the reason opportunity for my people that gives me big smile and a lot of optimism of the future, brightest future that ahead of us. That that uh, awareness that I have done and the modern-day abolitionist groups like American and Slavery groups, Sudan Sunrise, and many other organizations out there who are doing good things. Um, had actually educated American public and American government and it really pressured the government in particular to make a difference and decision that will lead into a lasting peace in my country. And I always use my country as an example and a champion of this because we actually manage it after all this and, and I'm not talking slavery in particular uh, I was actually disappointed uh, from all, both governments, the South Sudan government and the Northern government, when they actually uh, accorded the, the comprehensive peace agreement in Abuja, Kenya, in 2005, they did not mention anything about slaves. They did not mention about those still held in bondage, whether they will be released, and I and I and I doubted even they will be released by the captors because they are the resource for them. They are the one that work for them, the ship laborers. There's no way you will give up the ship labor, someone who can actually farm for you for free, cultivate, and do whatever that they do for them. But I'm so happy that there are some other barriers that they're able to um, come together as a people, and that is the referendum. The referendum would just um, uh, get my people to determine and to choose their own future fate which my people, both in eight countries in diaspora and at home in Sudan, both south and the north, had overwhelmingly 
uh, chose or voted in favor of uh, self-determination, which lead to the highest uh, percentage of 98.83% uh, in favor of independent country. And now the world has the newest nation that joining in that will uh, the new country of the South, new Sudan country is South Sudan joining we are, the international we are so community. happy and we and the struggle continue it's struggle continue for those who are still yet to be free people like myself could never you know lay back and say I'm free less and until everyone is free because I know I'm speaking as a victim I'm speaking as someone who had experienced this thing that I'm talking I'm a living proof and I don't know how many uh, former slaves are still out there. And, and this is something that gives me a great pride and an opportunity to, to represent millions of men and women who are still uh, held in bondage and, and still trafficked in all these nations who make every little sacrifice to live their own small property and come to America with a better promise and the future and some end up being slaves, technically. And this is why the, the definition of slavery is so broad. There are many ways that people can be easily uh, slaves in this country. And human trafficking has actually dedicated that those you know, who are in slavery in the U.S., those who come and work for no pay under the threat of violence. And you can actually term that, because that's what it is. I was actually taken from my village to northern Sudan working for no pay under threat of violence. And the same thing happened to many women in prostitution. This is the thing that we as the people must address them and must make sure that they are being addressed by our governments. But it's, in the end, it's all for servitude. You don't have the choice of leaving. You don't have the choice of saying no. And, uh, you know, these have really become disposable people, as one of the abolitionists has, has coined the term. Um, now that you've been working as an abolitionist for a decade, do you feel that um, the, the possibilities are good for 10, 20, 30 years from now that we will begin to uh, decrease the presence of slavery in the world, that, that we, we can actually move in the direction of eradicating the problem once and for all? Um, I, I would say, John, there's no permanent situation on this planet. There is absolutely no permanent situation. Everything subject to change. Why can't it be changed? I think we are making progress already. If the people of Mauritania and Northern Africa are able to abolish and eradicate slavery once and for all some years ago, why can't it be also in Sudan? If the people of the United States made it through the civil rights but was led by the late uh, Euro, the son of this country, Dr. Martin Luther King, who fought for civil rights. Slavery was abolished and eradicated in this country in 1865. Today, this country is better off, despite some other uh, little things that are still going on. It is better off than before. It, we are actually making progress and we are actually decreasing it. And, and can be decreased if we all actually speak up for it and say this is wrong. We have to acknowledge it first, it is wrong. No man, no woman, no child, nobody deserves to be treated or dehumanizing and enslaved. We all deserve to live 
as we all wish to live and be who God created us to be. Yes. So we cannot uh, overpower and overlook and actually treat others less than us. I like to be treated like the way you want to be treated. And I should respect your dignity so we all can live together in peace and harmony and prosperity that each of us respect others. So yes, we're making progress. The people like Dr. Bell, uh, Kevin Bell was Disposable People, the wonderful book that actually exposed a lot of about slavery and, uh, and many other heroes out there has stated clearly and that now our State Department here in the United States been reporting yearly about this. And I think that already gives uh, a chance of change. Because when people are aware more about this, they actually talk about their communities, they make a difference, they pressure their uh, authorities um, and those in the, in the governing authorities, and they, they make a difference, they, they eradicate. So I see some progress, and I, I'm so proud that the, my new nation that's coming will be free out of this. Will be free, will be just because we are going to adapt the Western democracies. We are going to definitely strict into that. Because, yeah. well, on that note, let me thank you. We appreciate having you today, Francis Bach. Thank you. And thank you for the Global Perspective Show. I'm John Bercia. We'll see you next time. This program was made possible by funding from the UCF Global Perspectives Office.
It was almost two years ago that I started work on a small log cabin in the northern Canadian bush. And it has been exactly a year since I closed the cabin door for the last time and moved away. Finally, I got the chance to return, and I am anxious to see how the cabin has fared the last four seasons on its own. While most parts of North America are enjoying mild spring weather with no snow, my aluminum snowshoes are falling through waist-deep powder and temperatures of minus 20 degrees Celsius. Although this looks like January weather, would you believe that this is late April? It's been a long, hard winter here. Lots of snow and a solid month of minus 40 degree temperatures. There were even a few days that registered right around minus 50. It seems that the lynx population has been hit the hardest this winter. Several locals have reported that their dogs have been attacked by lynx along the hiking trails. Normally, lynx avoid this sort of contact with bigger dogs and humans, but the prolonged cold temperatures have forced them to make desperate decisions. It wasn't far from here that I spotted a mother lynx and her two cubs last year. And of course, I didn't have my camera ready at the time. On my way into the cabin, yet another lynx had silently stalked behind me for a short distance, but it eventually turned off my path and took a different direction. And I wouldn't have noticed it at all if it weren't for the footprints it left behind over my fresh tracks. In building the cabin, I wanted it to be simple for two reasons. Number one, because of the cabin's location, I knew that I'd be having to do everything by hand getting the equipment and supplies in, 
moving and hoisting the logs would all have to be done with good old-fashioned manpower. number two. I didn't have a lot of money to work with. Simple as that. And in this complicated world, simple just seems to offer more. Complicated offers bells and whistles, but simple. Simple offers freedom. Although some would argue that this cabin wasn't built to code, it is still perfectly legal. That's because it's built on privately owned property, and the local government doesn't require a permit for any structure that is 10 feet by 10 feet or under. And this log cabin just so happens to be exactly 10 feet by 10 feet. So yes, I'm aware that building my logs right on the ground without proper footings and not debarking them means that they will not last a full century like they could have if I had done all these things but that's just fine. These logs will probably last at least a quarter century without any need for repairs. And so far the cabin has settled and dried out quite nicely, and the bottom rows don't show any signs of rotting in the near future. I am also aware that I'm using a tarp to cover the roof and contrary to popular belief, it has not instantly disintegrated or even began to fade yet. Besides, tarps can be replaced easily enough and at low cost, so even if I have to replace it every five to ten years or so, it won't be a problem. I'll just make sure to buy the heavy-duty kind. And yes, I know that there are gaps in my door and that it most definitely isn't bear-proof, but in the winter time, when there's a draft, I just place a blanket over the door and it stays quite warm and cozy inside. As for the bears, I haven't had any try to come inside yet, and if they do, they're not going to find it too terribly interesting. There's no food, and I didn't leave any fine china behind for Mr. Bear to break. Anyway, I like the door, and so it stays, gaps and all. Did I mention that it used to be a coffee table? My point is, there will always be some who will find fault in this simple design, but all I know is that it works for me. And at the end of it all, I only spent about $500 on the entire cabin, and most of that money went into the lumber I used in the roof. If I wasn't planning on moving at the time, I would have taken longer to construct the roof out of smaller logs, which would have significantly brought down the cost that much more. But I don't regret a single decision I made in the cabin's construction. Upon entering the cabin, I could see signs that there had been a visitor in my absence. A couple wads of insulation along the top logs and a pile of pine nuts on the shelf told me that a squirrel had stopped by for a visit at some point. 
Oh well, no harm done. It wasn't anything that 15 minutes of dusting couldn't fix. When I stepped back outside, I was surprised to see an old friend. Meet Charles. When I first started building the cabin, Charles would always fly past between 10.30 and 11.30 a.m. every morning. He always flew toward the west, and he was always 100 meters to the south of me. It was his morning routine. After a while, instead of simply flying past, Charles would break from his scheduled flight plan to circle overhead a few times. I figured it was his way of saying hello. Eventually, when Charles came overhead in my little clearing in the bush, he would stop to land on a nearby tree to watch as I worked, and in this way we kept each other company. It was then that I named him Charles, and this is how our relationship continued until I moved away. Every day he'd come to visit between 10.30 and 11 a.m. He would call and I would call back at him. And so, you can imagine how happy I was to see him again, over a year later. He perched on a nearby tree when I arrived, and so I'd like to think that he recognized me. It's always good seeing an old friend, even if he is an old crow. So what started me on this simple cabin project? Well, I'm a youth pastor, and my church owns some bush property. And so I figured building a log cabin on the property would be a great project for my youth group to work together on. And although I worked alone most of the time, the youth would get together and join me on a Saturday from time to time or for a couple hours after school. It was a great opportunity for them to learn new skills, make friends, and gain confidence in themselves. On other occasions, a friend would join me for an afternoon to help out. Sometimes there were people who I barely knew that wanted to lend a hand. So, if nothing else, I made a lot of good friends during the construction of this cabin. And so, when the cabin was complete, I donated it to the church and the youth group.
Someday, I'll build my own log cabin, but a piece of me will always be with this one, tucked away somewhere in the northern Canadian wilderness. If you'd like to know more about this log cabin, simply click the link to view the next video. If you liked today's episode, anything to do with log cabins, survival, or wild edibles, then please feel free to subscribe. I'm The Outsider saying, until next time.
Okay. It kept on looping. Uh, today's Are podcast okay? is titled. Yeah, I'm okay. Um, okay. I was falling asleep, but. Oh, I'm okay. okay I didn't know. I didn't know if you were aware there was a lot of pauses in the show. Yeah, that was me waking up, falling asleep. Okay. I've been pulling some binge hours lately. Um, okay. I'm not watching Netflix either. Uh, just on my anyway. Winsome, Winsome, uh, Winsome Sears. Uh, the day's podcast is titled Winsome Sears. A dollar seventy-five cents to Lieutenant Governor Virginia. The state of Virginia elected its first black female lieutenant governor this week, and her name is Winsome Sears. Her father uh-huh. uh, needed a job, so he came over to the U.S. And when he came into the U.S. nineteen early nineteen sixties, somewhere around there. He only had a dollar seventy-five cents to his name. That was it. But yeah, I he listened. Quickly found a job and raised a family. She's one of the people, and she's one of these people where there are no excuses if you're here in the USA. So I just had to put that out there. Anyway, what's what's uh, happening on your end? Uh, I'm just, uh, just, uh, maintaining, oh, I am on tpublic.com. It is a merchandise, t-shirts, mugs, hoodies, tapestries, all kind of things. I just became an affiliate marketer over there, and I am now, um, they have designs in there from other artists that people can go and order T-shirts on. And I'm also uploading original logos from Vibes Live Radio. I'm also putting up my sayings, we don't wait, we work, the millionaire concept, and just build the damn thing. Yeah, I like that one. Just build the damn thing. <laughs> I'm going to have to order that one myself. Okay. And may I have permission to uh, upload It's My House logo? What's that look like? Well, it would be on T-shirts and mugs and whatever. We can put it on merchandise and and have merchandise. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let me take a look at it when you get it done. Unless you've done it already. Okay, I will. I had a, oh, excuse me, a matter of fact, I had a, I still got it, but it's faded. It's My House t-shirt, It's My House baseball hat. So what I logo did you use somewhere. for that? Can you send me, can you, do you have those? Can I you send find, them to me? Well, what I did was, uh, it wasn't so, the name was the logo. I ordered, um. The name? Oh, man. Yeah, 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 the name was the logo. So I had T-shirts and uh, okay. I had a T-shirt and a baseball hat and a T-shirt 
I wear it at least so once a really month. you don't have a design for, for It's My House, right? Not an official design, no. Okay. Not an well, official. I might create something. I'm not going to say it's going to be your official design, but I'm going to create something. All right, we'll take a look at that. Well, and on I'll that note, uh, yeah, because it, okay, it's what, 12 noon here. I'm going to end it for the day because my body is telling me you need to rejuvenate. Get some rest. So I'm going to do just that. I can probably recharge within a half hour or no more than an hour. And we'll be back tomorrow. So on that note, everyone have a good rest of the day.